Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with WFIU WTIU News, News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. Today we're going to be talking about a new report that's just come out that shows a dramatic drop in uh, effectiveness of, of handling mental health issues in Indiana. At least that's uh, one conclusion that that certainly could be drawn. The Mental Health uh, Mental Health America has issued a new report that says that. Um, Indiana, which ranked 19th in 2011, has dropped to 45th place when you look at 15 different measurements, including the number of adults abusing illicit drugs or alcohol, the percentage of youth dealing with major depressive episodes, and the amount of uh, adults, the number of adults with mental illness uh, reporting unmet needs. So today we're going to talk about that report, try to get to the bottom of why Indiana would drop so far so fast. And uh, we will do so with Linda Grove-Paul, who's in the studio with us. Linda's uh, been a guest on our program before. She's vice president of adult services at Centerstone of Indiana, and she's a board member of Mental Health America. And also Julie Bingham, clinical director for Mental Health America of Indiana. You can join the discussion by calling us at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. You can join a live chat wfiu.org slash noon edition and you can follow us on twitter at noon edition so uh julie good to have you on the phone thank you very much thanks for being here and linda good to see you again thank you and sarah always good to see you on fridays you too bob all right so we're going to talk about this very serious issue mental illness is something that i, I think is uh, much understood and probably underreported and under discussed issue and linda's nodding her head already so linda let's let's talk about this new report that came out i mean do you see any um what what do you see like behind the numbers mm -hmm. what do you see well that's a good question um i think as you indicated they're looking at 2011 versus 2014 um and the drop from 19 to 45 is a significant decrease, um, which is certainly a call for concern. Um, you know, I think some things have been been happening um, around 2008, sort of the time of the, the recession. Uh, funding for mental health services in Indiana was cut. Um, and, uh, you know, in addition to the, the funding cuts, um, you're really looking at, you know, a lot of people who didn't already have access to care. Um, from 2014 to 2015, um, Indiana did go forward with the, the Medicaid expansion, HIP 2.0. Um, and so there are really a lot of people who were not receiving services or even eligible for insurance. Those are some of the measures that they're looking at in terms of access to care, access to insurance, whether or not they can afford care. Um, and there are a significant portion of adults in particular, um, which is why I think that adult number looks so low. Adults, if you separate it out, um, actually have slid to 47th. Um, in the country uh, during that time period. So I think that that lack of access to care is, is a big part. And I can just say um, from our standpoint, so 2015, you can see in Indiana that we have increased funding. Um, I did a, a data poll on our clients and specifically looking at addictions, um, you know, which is obviously a, a significant concern. Um, and they were people who had a substance use disorder were the least likely to be covered um, previously. So if you had a serious and persistent illness, um, you would have had uh, insurance before perhaps you could get pregnancy Medicaid, um, but individuals without, um, who just had a substance diagnosis were not eligible. Adults weren't before this expansion. So I uh, pulled data to look at um, where we were in 2015 in May versus uh, June of this year, and we'd increased from only 16% of our addiction population had any insurance to 70% at this point. Um, so, you know, I think that that is, um, that is definitely a significant improvement. Okay. Julie, you want to uh, react to the report? Just give us some, uh, you know, some of your highlights or some of the things that you really noticed. Yes, I would absolutely agree with Linda, and I would agree that <clears throat> since the, um, the HIP 2.0, we have seen the same, that our um, the ability to cover services for these individuals um, has increased. Um, and I think that the recession did in 2008 did um, have a major impact on that as well. So I would agree with, with her report. Okay. Well, help me help me understand this. So, so I'm, I'm trying to work my way through um, this data. So in, in uh, 
So since HIP 2.0, you're saying that there's more availability, more people are on insurance, so they're actually seeking care. Correct. Yeah, you have a whole population of individuals who have never had insurance. As an adult, they have never had any access to care, and that's whether that's behavioral health or health care. And I think that's the thing that's really important in this report, too, is they're really looking at health outcomes as well, um, which are are correlated. I mean, you know, individuals who are smoking, um, there's, there's a very strong correlation between the behavioral health and the health overall, and that's one of the reasons why... Indiana has really been further behind is, you know, that integration of behavioral health with health because they're so locked. Um, If people aren't able to seek care, you know, the only place they're ending up getting care is in the emergency room um, and there's no real follow-up. So it ends up being very expensive care. You know, the other point really would be the criminal justice system. Um, So many of of our folks with a substance use disorder or mental health issue end up in the criminal justice system. Um, And there have been some significant changes in the last uh, two years to that as well, um, which I think will be probably highlighted in, in the upcoming um, report. But, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, almost 80 percent of individuals with substance use disorder who are in the criminal justice system that have um, a substance. But if they got out of jail or prison or, you know, even if they went to the emergency department after they, they get out, they, they have no access to health care. So, you know, the kinds of services that you could provide for somebody who has no health insurance is significantly different than those who do. How does just the number of folks who are trained to work in the field of mental health, how is that affecting the problem here in Indiana? Julie, you want to talk? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, I think, you know, in Previously, there were very few people going into the mental health field to want to work. I mean, it it didn't pay the greatest, but I think now that we are seeing um, an increase in individuals that are going and and pursuing this type of degree, um, but, I mean, there are, you know, there's licensures that you have to get, and, you know, it is, um, you know, we want to make sure that we're providing quality, good quality care, and so there is an extensive amount of training, and I think that, um, you know, when you think of going into this profession, you don't think that there's going to be all of this um, additional work and licensing. And so, um, you know, in my thing is a lot of people are, um, you know, more likely now to go through the program. And we want to make sure that we have evidence-based treatment and that um, individuals that are going into this field get the quality training and the licensures and the experience that they need to be working with um, these individuals. One of the things I know that we've reported on and we've had folks tell us is that it would be more beneficial to perhaps train nurse practitioners to administer mental health services. So, I mean, is that idea gaining any traction or what would we have to do to get something like that started? Yeah, nurse practitioners versus psychiatrists. Right. I mean, I think yeah, talking about, about the access to psychiatric care, um, that is definitely a problem. And, and funding is absolutely connected with that because if you're not reimbursing for services for people to come, then, you know, the chances of actually being able to, to hire someone is, is difficult. Um, it, it, there's no question that people are attempting to hire more nurse practitioners, and nurse practitioners are actively working at, at Centerstone um, and working in other other agencies. But but there's just a provider shortage all the way around. Um, you know, when we look at psychiatrists, nurse practitioner, even behavioral health clinicians, um, you know, we really are, are working on developing our workforce. Um, the other thing that I think is significant is that the providers are aging out. Um, so the, the average age of a licensed mental health practitioner is 48.9, um, and the average age of a psychiatrist is 55. Um, so, you know, you're really and, – and part of that, again, is it's been trending down in terms of what the value is that we put on behavioral health. Um, and I think that, that Bob mentioned this in the beginning, you know, just the stigma, the fact that we need to talk about this, that, that our health is related to <laughs> – our behavioral health um, overall and who is practicing is a really important question too because oftentimes people are seen for depression in their physician's office or they have a substance use issue that comes up in their their physician's office so you know part of our workforce issue really is being better integrated you know who all can be diagnosing who needs to be looking at that now um, just like training for addiction psychiatrists you know sometimes they get maybe an hour 
hour or two in addictions. Um, if they're lucky, the same thing is really true in um, the primary care is, you know, training in behavioral health. Um, and again, having funding to support that, that integration is something that's really important. So I'd say in addition to nurse practitioners, we're really looking at primary care, OBGYNs, um, you know, pretty much anybody uh, who is, is seeing our client or seeing people who have behavioral health issues mm -hmm. because the prevalence and is And so I would add to that with what Linda said is that um, with the OBGYNs, I know that a lot of the clients that we see in our mental health of America um, is that the women will say, you know, I have one appointment a year and I will go to my, it's more likely that I'll go to my OBGYN and they're going to be treating me and they may not, you know, they may be the only doctor that they see for a year. So I agree with that. Mm -hmm. All right. Our phone number is 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. Outside of the Bloomington area, you can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So I hope you'll, you'll follow me on this. I feel like we've sort of introduced two topics today already because the overall topic of – of mental health, mental health treatment, the uh, the lack of resources in some ways, the stigma. I mean, there's a great big issue. Then there's this report, and you know we've talked about the report somewhat. And what I'm what I'm having trouble with, or what I'm trying to grapple with, is is um, yeah, Indiana has HIP 2.0. There are a lot more people that are eligible now for mental health treatment in Indiana, but Indiana dropped from 19th to 45th. So other states have Obamacare too. They have more access. I mean, HIP 2.0 is Indiana's answer to Obamacare. So why why is it that Indiana is faring so much worse on this well, 2014 survey than 2011? Well, we didn't have HIP 2.0 in right. 2014, so that that's part of it. And you know, I think we were we were later to the game, and I think our scores weren't. Great. I mean, in many of these areas, we're not great beforehand. And again, I think if you're trending negatively, people are beginning to really see the connection and seeing the cost connection. Actually, Pew came in in 2010 and did a uh, criminal justice overall study to really look at, um, you know, what percentage of people who have a, a mental health or a substance issue are in the criminal justice system. And the criminal code had not been updated for 30 years. Um, and they did a massive revision of the criminal code to basically say, um, we know that a lot of the people who are coming to us are coming to us because of the substance and mental health issues. Um, you know, it, it, they projected between 2010, 2014, that the the um, incarceration rate would continue to go up like by 40% if something didn't change. And at that same point in time, the legislature has really done, you know, a number of things that are really significant. House Bill 1006 is one of those. And that really is saying we need to decriminalize people who have, you know, basic drug crimes, um, things related to mental health, um, and crimes that may have involved their, their drug use. Um, so, you know, I think the fact that we had been stale for so long on a lot of these measures and other states may have been stepping up more quickly to begin to address those. Um, and we haven't really seen the effects of that. The other thing with uh, House Bill 1006 is the legislature has given uh, $30 million worth of funding to fund recovery supports. Um, and those supports really are people who are transitioning back into the community in order to be successful. Not only do you have to access treatment, you have to be able to get a job. You have to be able to have housing. You have to have, you know, kind of a whole continuum of supports that are available. And there has not been any funding for that. So what you see at the end of 2014 is just our lack of follow through till that point, which I think is probably when we bottomed out. And I, I would hope to see in the next couple of years that we would be improving. Okay. Julie? Yeah, I would Tim's. absolutely agree. Okay. You talked about this issue of the criminal code, so I just want to sort of go off of that for a second. But just this issue of putting people in jails or prisons instead of putting them into, the ho into hospitals or getting them some sort of medical treatment. Have you noticed that the criminal code is helping that problem or, or sort of how pervasive is that in Indiana? Yeah. And, and that's a, a double question um, as well because, you know, one of the, the big issues in the state of Indiana is really having access to 
acute care, um, access to detox. Um, you know, we, we went through, like many other states, um, deinstitutionalizing, you know, taking people from state hospitals and putting them back into the community. And unfortunately, as we did that, we didn't necessarily have funding that was attached to that and have resources for people to, you know, if they needed to be hospitalized, you know, short term, you know, there, there's not necessarily those places for people to be able to go. That is beginning to happen, again, because some of the folks that didn't have insurance before have insurance because, you know, once you have insurance, there are, there are a lot of, you know, folks that are coming into town that are potentially interested in that. So I think that's one thing that hopefully will help. But there's a huge shortage of crisis beds um, and kind of that acute care stabilization to prevent people from, because I think sometimes, you know, the, the jails and um, sheriff and police, are their hands are really tied because you have someone who, you know, really is having an episode, but there isn't a place for those folks to go. So that is a, a need. That is a huge need that we still have in our community. The other part is really looking at diversion. Um, how do we prevent people from getting into the criminal justice system? To, to even start with. Um, so, you know, th there are a lot of recommendations about what are best practices in terms of trying not to put people um, into um, into the jail, um, CIT training, crisis intervention for the police, how do you de-escalate if you're in a situation where you have a person who maybe has a serious and persistent mental illness, um, but, you know, they're coming across as, you know, potentially being violent. How do you recognize that? How do you be able to differentiate? So it's really partnering. I mean, you know, most of these solutions really are about partnering, whether it's with the, you know, the police or the criminal justice or um, the medical uh, establishment is to recognize that you know this this is an issue and you know we can we can work better together. We had Bloomington's police chief on this program, a decop, and he was even saying when you close down the <coughs> mental hospitals, that was when they started to notice lots of problems here in terms of the homeless population and such and their hands were really tied because exactly. jail is not a place where a lot of these folks belong. Mm -hmm. But but the options are so limited. And that's, you know, again, for us is we provide, you know, very intensive wraparound services for, you know, some of for our, our highest need folks. But sometimes they really need to be hospitalized. Um, you know, there's situations where, you know, they aren't safe for themselves or someone else. They need to be stabilized on their medication. And, you know, that's not going to be something that's just going to happen and an outpatient basis. Julie, in this uh, report, uh, a story I read on this report talked about how uh, rural communities in Indiana have their own unique struggles. Could you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, it's just the accessibility of, of services. I used to work in a rural um, area um, after graduate school, my, one of my very first jobs, and that was um, – the, the most difficult thing was the accessibility of services. Sometimes there's, they don't have transportation to get to um, the clinic that's close to them. Sometimes they live 25 miles away or 25 minutes away to get to the care. And so we really need to be able to have um, accessible services where we can get um, services to them in their home or um, be able to have some kind of system of care where they can be transported to their services um, and there is absolutely a need for being able to um, provide more services for those that are in the rural communities. What are some strategies? To, what are some strategies that you might suggest to to do that? I mean, I, I think the the story that I have in front of me says that there's often only one provider option for a thousand people. And, yeah, uh, that's absolutely just, correct. Yeah. yeah, and it really takes a community to be able to come together. And, um, you know, the whole state is, you know, we've got many rural communities in the state of Indiana. So, you know, it really starts at the state level. And, you know, we, we need to be able to get into the communities and strategize what are we going to be able to do to fix this problem mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and address this need. I mean, um, just because they're in a rural community doesn't mean that they shouldn't be given the quality of care that um, everybody else could be in a bigger area. Right. Yeah, I'd just like to add to that. Um, you know, Centerstown, we're in 19 counties, and, you know, Bloomington is the most urban by far. Um, you know, we're, we're, we have services in Scott County, for example, um, Rush, where, you know, overdose rates are just out of, out of control, and access to treatment is really difficult. Um, one of the, you know, one of the potential solutions is telehealth, telepsychiatry. Um, you know, we really are using that much more to be able to, to access resources. That same thing's true in jails. 
um, you know, you can actually be able to have an interview or talk to somebody um, there. But, uh, you know, again, that provider shortage and actually recruiting um, individuals to those communities is probably one of our largest challenges. So like Monroe County, it's not too hard to get a psychiatrist, but um, we have uh, one in, in Wayne County where we've been recruiting for a, a psychiatric nurse practitioner or psychiatrist for five years. Um, and it's to serve those those surrounding areas. So we've had to be really creative. You know, we have a couple of psychiatrists that drive from Bloomington to Richmond um, to provide those services. So, you know, the, the recruitment is really an issue. And I think part of that is a, it's a pipeline issue too is that there are not enough trained people in the pipeline um, and that's true for you know adult psychiatrists and children psychiatrists they actually uh, as far as medical professionals are paid the least um, and oftentimes re they require extra training um, so so it's very difficult you know med schools I think Julie and I'm not sure exactly how many I think it's about 19 maybe graduate um, a year yeah. in the state of Indiana. So, you know, when we talk about trying to keep, maintain capacity, it's it's a big struggle. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to take a break. I want to ask our, uh, our, our callers. We have two callers waiting on the line. I'm going to ask them to be patient. We're going to take about a 90-second break, and then we'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. And uh, we're talking about mental health issues today. Our launching point was a Mental Health uh, America report that basically shows that Indiana has, has gone from 19th uh, in the state or in the nation to 45th in the nation when it comes to some uh, 15 measurements of dealing with adults or with people with, with mental health issues. So we have two guests with us. Linda Grove-Paul is Vice President of Adult Services at Centerstone of Indiana. Julie Bingham is Clinical Director for Mental Health America of Indiana. And uh, you can join our program at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348 or you can join a live chat wfiu.org slash noon edition and you can even follow us on twitter at noon edition we've had two callers who've been very patient with us deborah is first ever from ellettsville hello um i'd like to ask you all if you know of a, a man named dr daniel fisher and another one named dr abraham abram hoffer have you heard of him those two not ringing any bells, no. Not, not oh, either. Okay. Dr. Fisher sounds very familiar. Mm -hmm. What was the first name? Daniel. Daniel Fisher. Yeah, Dr. Was he in the Daniel Muncie Fisher. area or Ball State area? I don't know where he's from exactly, but I know that he's had an effect on the whole approach to mental health. Um, and it's, it, it's in, he's made waves internationally, and he's brought in a lot of great and, and innovative ideas. He himself was uh, schizophrenic, mm -hmm. and uh, his psychiatrist, when he was younger, told him, what is it that you would like to do with your life? And he said, I would like to be like you, a psychiatrist. And his psychiatrist said, go for it. And he said he was able to overcome his schizophrenia and because he had such a goal in front of him. And yeah. he, oh, sorry. he has no traces of it anymore. And he encourages 
people who have mental health issues to support one another. He has this whole idea of peer support and people who are advancing and making progress to help others who are behind and give them encouragement and have those kind of groups and have respite homes instead of the fifth floor of the mental health of the hospital, you know, the stress care units and the crisis units, but have uh, respite homes that are run by these peers. And, I mean, he has a lot of ideas that have actually worked. And then this man named Dr. Abram Hoffer, he worked for 50 years with mental health patients. He's already passed on. But um, he, he has innovative ideas about what to use as an alternative to the drugs. And they worked. That's great. You know, and I I am familiar with uh, with the first physician, um, although the the name just kind of sounded vaguely familiar. But, you know, this idea of uh, bringing peers into the workforce is something that's very powerful um, and is very effective. Um, We, in in a number of our communities, have what's called a recovery engagement center. um, And that's a a drop-in center for people um, who who have substance issues. And it's all staffed by, by volunteers. Volunteers. Um, those volunteers are all individuals who are in recovery, um, who are, you know, trying to help people navigate, you know, kind of the waters of, of uh, substance use in particular. Um, we also have a peer-run recovery center um, here in Bloomington that, you know, very much does that that same kind of thing in terms of just meeting people where they are. And, and we have programs. We, we employ peers um, to provide services as well as recovery coaches that provide those wraparound, you know, type services. And, you know, actually, Actually, that is having a really positive impact on people in the field. I was actually just giving a, a group a tour of our, our recovery engagement center, and um, you know, a couple of our volunteers said, you know, this is why I got sober is to be able to volunteer and to be, you know, it adds meaning to my life and being able I'm to be so a, glad a to participant. Hear that. And I also know that it works with people who have all the categories of mental Correct. illness. You know, the schizophrenia, the you know, multiple person, whatever it is. You know, the uh, manic depressive, all those things. And, and depression, I think, all those yeah. things that work. I would think um, individuals would feel more comfortable knowing that if they're going into a, a treatment or a program, knowing that there's been somebody that has experienced something very similar to what they have, they're going to be more likely to feel that support and likely to go through a treatment program if they have um, somebody that has been through that and is in, you know, has been through the recovery process. So, yeah. yeah that's right. Well, thank you for letting me put my input in. Well, here. thank you so much thank for your you, input. Deborah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Deborah. 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. What did you find out, Sarah? You, oh, this um, Daniel Fisher. Yeah, he, he has quite an impressive resume. He was a member of the White House Commission on mm-hmm. Mental Health and... He's featured on CNN, it looks like, quite frequently, and he travels all across the country giving workshops and addresses and talking about this idea of consumers working as providers. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, the recovery-oriented systems of care approach is really kind of flipping, you know, typically behavioral health, um, you know, kind of used to really focus on, you know, mental health or substance use issues as uh, a disease that that is not unlike a broken arm. You know, so you go in, you get it fixed, and then you leave. And we know, you know, uh, mental health issues like substance issues are chronic relapsing diseases. Um, and so, you know, you really can't, you know, do the Band-Aid approach. You really have to do long-term, lifelong approaches. And and really, that's, as an organization, we've really completely changed the way that we're delivering care that's much more consistent with, you know, this recovery-oriented system of care, really having the consumer drive that, you know, really giving them the opportunity to be the person that, you know, at, at the end of the day may very well be, become a provider. We, we have uh, peer recovery specialists where we provide training. And in fact, one thing that we're, we're contracting with the state of Indiana to develop the forensic peer recovery training specialists as well. Um, so that's actually an add-on to uh, the state already certifies individuals who are in recovery to provide services, and there's a payment point for that. Um, but we're really expanding that to you know individuals who have been incarcerated and bringing their experience so that they can work in the jails and the criminal justice setting. So, so it's definitely a very robust 
um, field that is, you know, I think really kind of turning on its head recovery and, and beginning for people to really share their stories of, of recovery because a lot of people have been hiding. I mean, and I think that's, you know, something that's really important, you know, to note is that there are a lot of people who suffer with, suffer with mental health and substance issues and they're afraid to talk about it. But this whole movement, you know, really is saying, no, this is this is a strength. This is something that I've been dealing with. All right. Let's go back to the phones. We have Stan. Stan? Hi. Um, I, I had a clear impression that, that the uh, advent of, of new, uh, much more potent uh, drugs has led to a, a rapid increase in the number of, 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 of people on drugs. But I'm, I'm puzzled about the, the lack of response uh, to, to the reduction in mental health funding. I, I was in D.C. when President Reagan closed down institutions, and it immediately affected the streets. Uh, there were people in the park across from the White House and all along the business streets uh, importuning for handouts, and I just don't understand why our executive here wouldn't have been warned about having the same reaction mm-hmm. when, when the governor closed down funding for mental health. I, I wonder if somebody actually spoke to the executive branch about that at the time. Julie, you want to go first on that? Well, I'm, I'm not as familiar with that, you know, what the state at the state level is, so I'm not sure if Linda would have more of a better answer on that than what I have. Well, you know, I know I was looking at some data ahead of time, um, and one is from Explorer uh, Health Measures um, in Indiana. So it's an Indiana base where they're really looking at you know where we are, and and we ranked 48th in terms of public health funding. Um, so you know, again, I think really going back to that. Um, I think people didn't really understand what the implications were. Um, I think. You know, there there really was a sense that you know institutionalizing people long term, just like incarcerating them, is not necessarily the right answer. But for you know people who maybe lived in a state hospital really all of their adult life, transitioning back into a community is a very challenging transition. And especially if you have people who are coming out of jail, for example, and they don't have any insurance, they're not able to access um, any care. So I think there's a lot of unintended consequences. And I think as Sarah mentioned, you know, with with the Chief Decoff, um, a lot of, of these folks end up getting caught up in, in the criminal justice system, and the criminal justice system doesn't have the resources to be able to support them without that public health funding. So I think it's a great point, um, and I think we have to keep that at the top of our radar um, in terms of you know making sure we're continuing to remind our executive branch and our legislators that this is really important and it's all connected. Julie, you, you may not uh, work in this uh, area, but for Mental Health America, I would, I would think that that organization, uh, I know in the report that Mental Health America put out, it, talked, it talks about how all states need to improve right. access Absolutely. to, to health care. So do you know what kind of lobbying efforts go on and what kind of interactions go on at the uh, federal oh, yes, level or, and state yes. level? Yes. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Um, there are many subsidiaries that are um, the more of the advocating, and they are they spend during the sessions time and time. Um, they're there during the whole general um, session. Steve McCaffrey is, you know, constantly um, lobbying and you know pushing these bills through to advocate for our services. And um, it is so important for it to be done at that level so we can get um, it this at the state level. And you're right, uh, you know, no matter if it's the East Coast, if it's the West Coast, mental health, uh, it's important no matter what state that we're in. And obviously, it is very important in Indiana, too. Just want to note that you are the clinical director. So as clinical director, I mean, what are, what are some of the resources that, that you wish you had more of? Some of the uh, other resources that I wish that, um, you know, with the dual diagnosis, with the substance abuse and how it impacts all of um you know, all of the disorders that, you know, that are dual diagnosis. And I wish that with the um, um, workforce development, you know, and being able to have accountability and accessibility for these services and um, the children and families, I mean, this is a cycle that continues to happen. And if we're not helping um, at, at the, you know, when we, at the time that the service is needed, this, uh, this can be an ongoing cycle and it can affect the, the 
children in the home, and um, you know we need to be able to uh, address all of the issues that we have going on. Yeah, and I just want to add to that, Julie. You know, I know in terms of working with uh, Department of Child Services, um, how many of the children who are in that system are in the system because of their their parents. You know, 80 to 90 percent have a substance use um, issue. So, you know, it is all very much interrelated. And we know that our children are getting worse. Well, you know, if your parent is you know in and out of jail or they have a significant substance issue or mental health issue, that is very much going to affect affect the children. So um, I think looking at that, I think the other thing is that we don't have a funding stream for prevention. Um, and, you know, that is a huge aspect of, you know, what we need to be focusing on is prevention, early intervention, diversion. Um, you know, I think as an example, when you think about an individual who um, receives naloxone if they have overdosed, um, and obviously we know the opiate problem is huge, um, they may show up in the, um, the emergency room, um, but there isn't necessarily a connection to care um, at that point. And that's, you know, just a critical place for us to, to be able to get involved, but there's not reimbursement um, for that. And not that, you know, we have a grant where we're, we're partnering with um, several hospitals to, to do that, but, you know, we have to, usually when we're doing something innovative, um, it requires us to get grant fundings to really demonstrate that, and then you're only able to do that on a small scale. And, you know, as a you know, caller indicated, I mean, a lot of the things that we're doing really are best practice. Um, we, we have data that really shows what works. Um, we just don't necessarily have the, the, the funding and the, the workforce to support it. The federal legislation, CARA, is supposed yes. to help with some of that, but without the money, there's doesn't really seem like there's a way to sort of connect the dots. And then I, I, I'm wondering, just talking about the federal level, though, it seems like we've heard mental health in a roundabout way discussed quite a bit during this election season. So I guess I'd like to get both of your feelings just moving forward with either candidate, who, whether it's Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, what do you all see as the future of mental health just at a, at a federal level in terms of funding, prevention, treatment? Julie, do you want to go first? Sure. I, I mean, I guess, in my opinion, um, I'm, I'm just concerned in general because this is something that it, mental health in general is something that's off, often, you know, pushed off or, um, you know, cut back. And, um, you know, we want to make sure that that doesn't happen, um, especially nationally, federally, you know, locally, statewide. Um, we, we've got, um, we're in, a, you know, a crisis mode where we need to have these services for individuals. And that is definitely something that I have been following with the election as far as with either party or either candidate. Um, you know, I, I'm just, I just am hopeful that, um, <laughs> that you know, we don't continue to see cuts and it's something that is um, pushed off to the side. Yeah, I, I think that um, I, I agree with Julie, and I think that in terms of, um, you know, getting some um, attention, particularly with mental health, is the whole substance opiate epidemic um, is something that has really raised um, attention to an unprecedented scale. And frankly, it, in large part, it's because it is affecting, you know, um, a demographic that, you know, it, it, that is not disenfranchised. Um, it used to be that, you know, primarily we were thinking about people with mental health and substance use as, you know, poor and, you know, of a certain race and, you know, certain social standing. Um, and, you know, we have legislators who have lost their children um, due to addiction or have serious uh, mental health issues. So I think, I think people are starting to see this as a more mainstream issue. And so, you know, my hope is that it stays up front. Um, Julie did mention uh, Steve McCaffrey, um, who uh, does a lot of lobbying for um, MHA. There's been some great, you know, again, additional legislation. One piece of legislation that happened uh, last year was uh, House Enrolled Act uh, 1269, which uh, requires sheriffs in, in the jail to enroll um, individuals in health insurance. Um, you know, coming out with health care is, is huge um, versus that. So, so I think that both at the, you know, the state level and the federal level, you mentioned CARA, the comprehensive of Addiction and Recovery Act. It has a lot of wonderful um, 
provisions in there, although there, there was no funding attached. Um, so, you know, I think we're not necessarily going to be able to get better unless we, you know, we continue to do that. But we have to be able to demonstrate the effect effectiveness, which I, th I think we can. We have about 10 minutes to go in the program. So if you want to join us and talk about issues involving mental health in uh, Indiana and in the nation in general, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside the Bloomington area, or you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So one of the measures used for uh, this Mental Health America report is a percentage of youth dealing with major depressive episodes. And in the, uh, I think in the report, it notes that youth mental health problems are uh, on the rise in a fairly significant way. So, Julie, can you help me understand why this is happening? Well, and I think that, <clears throat> you know, there's a lot that takes into place with that. I mean, um, I think a lot of the family systems can play a part of that if, um, if it's been something that is in the family history, um, depression, uh, that it can play a factor. I think um, if the family system is an unhealthy system, <laughs> that can play a factor. Um, and that can inc include the abuse and neglect and that, that whole cycle. Um, I also think that there's a lot of social pressure um, with social media and along with um, bullying. That's a whole new um, thing that we've seen that's been on the rise, too, that can lead to depression. Um, and then there's, uh, but I really feel that a lot of it, too, um, is based within the family system. Yeah, and I think, you know, just when you think about sort of the criminalization of individuals with substance and mental health issues is so many of these children that are in these family systems that Julie was talking about have parents that have been, you know, maybe in and out of, of jail. Um, and that's really disruptive. That's really difficult for, you know, for folks to and, and then, you know, if you come out of jail, it's much harder to get a job, secure housing, if you're divorced, you know, child support. So there are a lot of pressures that, you know, I think are our system um, is is putting on them just because we haven't addressed it in the way we need to. Why, if you can just talk specifically about depression and why that has become so common, I mean, certainly among youth, but just among the population, it just seems like the numbers have just skyrocketed. You want to take that? Um, yeah. Sure, absolutely. I think that it's more um, common for people to be able to talk more openly about it. I think before um, it was viewed as no one, you know, we shouldn't be telling anybody what, what's going on um, and what we're feeling and that, you know, we would look differently if people know um, that we may have um, kind of depression. I think maybe more people are open about it, more people are open and likely to um, be medicated for this or for um, seeking treatment. And I think, um, you know, based on... Um, the family, what's going on in the family, too, it might be more likely for people to, to know what's going on. Okay, Linda, do you want to add? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, I think those same things, the people are much more disconnected at this point, too. I think the expectation of, of happiness is is something that's there um, you know I think we really saw that with the whole opiate epidemic too is a lot of people who had access to you know kind of this prescription painkillers that really changes the way people feel um, and we are sort of a, a pill-based society where we're looking for that kind of that quick fix um, and unfortunately you know in, in many regards that has been you know kind of our, our undoing and our communities are breaking down we don't necessarily have the same kind of resources um, that we had at one point in time. So, you know, I think I think it is sort of a failing of, you know, just, just where we are as, as a society and some changes we need to really think about making. So for, for both of you, I mean, how far are we coming in eliminating or at least reducing the stigma of mental illness? I mean, I, I do believe that um, often, you know, and I think uh, in the promo we use the term, you know, most some of our most vulnerable citizens because people – uh, who have mental illness haven't typically had a, a very strong lobby. You know, there aren't people who are uh, out there with millions and millions and billions of dollars trying to move the needle on serving people with mental illness. Um, are we making progress in that area? Linda, why don't you go first on that? Um, you know, I 
I, I don't think we're making progress nearly quickly enough. Um, I think you know the fact that we're on the show today and we're talking about it is is important. That's a that's a big step. But you know the stigma of having a, a mental health uh, issue is is still really significant. And you know the vast majority of people will not share what that is. I think depression, as you asked about depression earlier, I think depression is something that maybe is more mainstream. People are more open about you know having some anxiety, although it's not necessarily clinical. But, you know, when it comes to having a serious and persistent mental illness or an addiction, you know, people still aren't as upfront and talking about it as they need to be. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that regard, I believe. Julie? I would absolutely agree. I think that um, there's still the stigma. And um, I think that um, we've come somewhat, you know, a little bit better than what we have, but definitely not moving as, as quickly as we could. You know, just as an observation, you know, I've been a, a supervisor or a boss for many, many years, and I can say with uh, with confidence that I hear more from some of my staff members who will just say matter-of-factly, well, you know, I've, I've talked to my counselor about this or I've mm-hmm. talked to my therapist about this, and which I always think is a, is a good thing. You know, it's a, it's a really good thing. So I think at least in maybe in a in, in a younger generation, there's mm-hmm. been so much more awareness that maybe we are starting to make a little bit of progress. Here. I think that's a good point. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Yeah. I think generationally, you know, people do feel more open about that. And there's less stigma and you know, the fact that we're talking about it regularly. Mm-hmm. We have a, a question from a caller that says, uh, shouldn't the government put more money into making free early uh, childhood education, free early education available since it would help with these a variety of these issues? Julie, do you think that's sure, true? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we do have a, at Mental Health of America, one of our subsidiaries is um, the Infant and Toddler Mental Health, um, and they actively are on top of this <laughs> and trying to uh, make sure that the time that there's some sort of delay or some sort of um, thing that the parents are saying that maybe just isn't quite right, they are starting to get into the, uh, the home, and we're really trying to start addressing this at that level. Yeah, and I agree that, you know, more prevention, early intervention really needs to happen. And I think to, to Bob's point just around stigma, I think, you know, parents still feel like, I, you know, is my child being singled out? I think the same thing's really true in schools is oftentimes, you know, we're a little late to the game in terms of making those behavioral health referrals, you know, having more people who are integrated, um, you know, in schools. And, and we have that some now, but I think that there are um, a lot of opportunities for us to intervene, you know, much earlier in a way that's just much more more positive and non-stigmatizing. All right, so we have this question from the caller, and you're free to answer it if you want. Of course, you're free to answer any question we ask you, but the caller asks, which presidential candidate do you think will fight for more mental health funding? Linda? You know, I really don't have any idea. I think, as as we've talked about, it looks like uh, it's on everybody's platform at this point in time, which is a huge victory. I mean, I think the fact that people are talking about it is is good. Um, I think it's not going to just be the presidential candidate, though. I mean, it's just as we looked at, you know, at CARA, it can go through, you know, the whole um, cycle and, and become law, but not necessarily having any funding. So that's going to really require Congress. So up. Somebody who's going to work together with them to really see this as a priority. Mm-hmm. Julie, and I absolutely agree. I don't. Um, I. It's been on everybody's platform, um, and that's the important thing is that it's out there, and that I just want to see follow through that it happens. But I believe that it is at the Congress level that it's going to have to take much more than just one of the candidates to. Um, well, if I can summarize, I, you, you know, you're you're actually sticking to the issues now. Mm-hmm. You're not not getting into the personalities of the candidates. You're sticking mm-hmm. to the issues. One of the things I read, I think, was from the World Health Organization, and they said uh, costs about a trillion dollars worldwide in a year just to treat um, mental health, like anxiety and depression. 
Um, so when we're talking about those kind of things, what are some of the preventative techniques, you know, just as we're talking about like dollars and cents, so we're not mm-hmm. spending a trillion dollars a year on this? We have about two minutes to go in the program. Early intervention. I mean, you know, yeah. really, really getting with people on, you know, recognizing what that is and having coping skills. You know, oftentimes anxiety, depression is something that, that can come from family, but it can also come from stress. So recognizing that, you know, we can hit this from, you know, from both fronts, you know, even if this is something that you've inherited, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's a life sentence between medication and, and treatment. It's definitely something that, that can be dealt with before it becomes a huge problem. And the co-occurring health issues, diabetes, COPD, you know, the other things that go along with that end up costing us a lot of money if we don't do something up front. Julie? Yes, I would absolutely agree. Um, early intervention and then also when they are, that's why we need to have you know, really strong evidence-based practices that they're coping skills that these practitioners can provide to these individuals at the beginning. So how, how are we going to um, encourage more people to go into this profession? We only have a minute to go, but uh, what would you say to somebody who is thinking about what area of medicine or, or health care to go into? Linda? Um, I think we, we have to really value the profession more, um, which means, you know, uh, you're, you're looking at higher reimbursement rates. I mean, you know, prior to, you know, last year, um, Medicaid hadn't increased in 25 years on some of the, you know, the codes. So, you know, we really can't pay people a competitive wage. And that's really why people decide that they want to go into one field or another. So, you know, I do think we have to look at that programs like loan forgiveness. You know, the, the feds are really looking, you know, more at those kinds of things. But like in the rural locations, you know, we really do have to incentivize people working in these high-need areas. Julie, your elevator speech? Um, I, yeah, they, I was just going to say I agree with Linda, but um, you know, really if there's a passion for being in this, this field, so you know, you really have to come in wanting to be working in the mental health field. Too. All right, Julie Bingham, thank you very much for being with us today. I really appreciate thank it. You. And Linda Grove-Paul, thanks for being back with us today. We appreciate that as well. For our producer, Drew Dodlin, engineer Mike Pashkash, and my co-host, Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and The Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.